0: A reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have just heard your word from Exodus chapter 19, and there is something of this word that makes us tremble. Yes, it was the mountain long ago that trembled because you were there upon the mountain, quaking upon it with fire and with smoke. But we know that you are the same God that is yesterday, today, and forever. And thus, today, in your presence, right now, as we hear this word from Exodus 19, if we hear it rightly, we tremble. And we ask, O Lord, that you would be merciful and gracious to us. We ask that in the midst of you, our holy God, you would remember mercy. And you would look to Christ, our covering. You would look to his finished work on the cross and his victory in the resurrection. And that as you meet with us today, you would come not in judgment and in condemnation. But that you would come with grace. And you would come in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that through the power of the Spirit, you would open up our hearts in a fresh way to know and understand the richness of what it is that you want to speak to us regarding in this particular word in Exodus 19. Lord, we sit at your feet. Now come by the Spirit and speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, mountains are awesome things. Those of you who have been to the Rocky Mountains and have driven through the Rocky Mountain National Park, or those of you who have climbed mountains, or have even driven to East Tennessee and seen, as it were, the smoke-wrapped mountains of the Appalachians, you know that we like to just go there and look. They are awesome things. It may be one of the reasons why so often when we... Look into the Scriptures. God does amazing work on mountains. In fact, from cover to cover in the Bible, mountains figure prominently. We would have already seen by this point in our study of the whole of the book of the Bible, if we were to go back to the opening pages of the book of Genesis, several mountains of significance. Mount Ararat, for instance. The mountain that the Ark of Noah ...landed on after the receding of the flood. And there, Noah meeting with God through sacrifice, giving thanks that he redeemed him out of the waters. We would have come to Mount Moriah, the mountain that Abraham had called to sacrifice him. And we would have read of the story of the ram that was provided in the thicket as a substitute for Isaac... And we would have seen the glorious picture of God's love and provision. Later, of course, in the Old Testament, we read of Mount Carmel. We read of Elijah. There with the prophets of Baal, who are in one sense really taunting him, and he begins taunting them back. And we see God in power and in fire and in smoke come down and consume the altar of which Elijah had built to prove that the God of Israel was the true God and was a great God over the God of Baal and over all of his prophets. Of course, that's to say nothing here of Mount Sinai, which is where we are, this This morning, Mount Sinai, this glorious mountain that Moses has already been on before. It's already prefigured in the text of the unfolding of the story of Exodus back in Exodus chapter 3. But the name of the mountain at that point was Mount Horeb. Another name given to the mountains in and surrounding the mountains we call Mount Sinai or the mountain range of which Mount Sinai is a part. It was there, of course, where Moses met God in the burning bush, in fire, and in smoke. And it was there that the Lord from that bush spoke to Moses and called him into the work of being the redeemer of God's people. And it's there where Moses will meet with the Lord again today. And there his people will meet with him for a long time. Here at Mount Sinai. And when I say a long time, I mean... A long time. I mean, a long time in terms of the text of the scripture that is before you this morning. Exodus 19 is the beginning of a section where the people of Israel will stay encamped on Mount Sinai and be engaging with God and Moses as mediator all the way to Numbers chapter 10. From Exodus 19 to Numbers 10. The people of Israel don't move. I don't know if you've ever thought of it in that way. But the whole of the book of Leviticus is done at the camp at Mount Sinai. and The beginning of the whole of the book of Numbers is right there at the encampment of Mount Sinai. And the rest of the book of Exodus is right there in the encampment of Mount Sinai. It's after Numbers 10 where the people of Israel begin to make their way to the promised land. And of course, we hear the story of the spies that go into the land and Joshua and Caleb and all of that. And then afterwards in the disobedience of Israel, the wilderness wanderings begin. This is a massive section and a massively important section for the people of Israel. We might rightly call it in some sense the, the time in which the people of Israel become a nation. This is their... Declaration of Independence. This is their constitution writing moment as a nation. God is going through the commandments and through the establishment of the tabernacle and through the calendaring of salvation history which he will establish in the coming chapters. He is showing the people of God who they are to be before him as the one who is the redeemer of his people. It's no surprise then, is it, that Mount Sinai and mountains generally are so important throughout the Scripture and really all important throughout church history and the writing and the teachings of so many of our great leaders of old. For instance, St. Augustine in his confessions speaks of the whole of the Christian life as an ascent, as it were, into relationship with God. St. Bonaventure spoke in his writings of the discipline of the Christian life as one where we are rising in biblical meditation on the love of God all the way up the mountain. St. John of the Cross described Christian spirituality, the whole of devotion of the Christian life, as a progressive ascent into union with God. It would be our own John Calvin in his Institutes of Christian Religion, where he speaks of the Christian life as. A kind of loving union whereby the Christian ascends into the heavenly mountain. And where even, well, Dante in his divine comedy would tell us that we must climb Mount Purgatory in order to get closer to God, in order to experience in the end complete union with the Lord. Now that's just a sampling of the many writings throughout church history that we could appeal to for why mountains ascending or rising into the presence of the Lord becomes, as it were, a metaphor for understanding all of how the Christian life actually operates. Today what we want to do in Exodus 19 is to really see in the ascending and descending of Moses on Mount Sinai something of the full a wharf, we might say, and wolf of the Christian life, the full scope of what the Christian life is all about. Seven times in the coming chapters, we're going to see Moses rise and fall. We're going to see him ascend and descend Mount Sinai. And right here in Exodus 19, we see the first three. He rises and then he descends. He rises again. And then he descends. And he rises yet a third time in this text and descends. And with each of those, we are learning something very significant about the whole of the Christian life. I want you to see in the first ascent of Moses in Exodus 19, we learn this very important truth. That God draws close to his people and his people... Are to draw close to him. God draws close to his people, and his people are to draw close to him. Now, you see it there in verses four to six, actually, in the text where Moses is called up into relationship with the Lord, into communion with the Lord. And the Lord is going to say several things to Moses in this first ascent to Mount Sinai. And the first thing he's going to say to him is, I want you and all the people of Israel to remember my past faithfulness. Before we go any further into this law thing, which we're going to hear a lot about in Exodus chapter 20 and in following chapters, before we ever get to this discussion about the law and the commands of God, I want you to remember my past faithfulness to you. I want you to remember, verse 4, that I humbled Egypt, the great superpower of the day. I displayed my power over Pharaoh and all the Egyptian gods in the plagues. They were powerless before me. And don't you remember how I completely obliterated the Egyptian army in the Red Sea event? So much so that I left it unmistakable that I am the superpower in the world and that you are my people. I humbled Egypt. But I want you to know I did all of that not just simply to flex my muscles. I did that because I love you and I rescued you. I wanted you to be free from the slavery in Egypt. I, I bore you, he says, on eagle's wings. What an incredibly glorious image that is, isn't it? I bore you on eagle's wings. Think, think of an eagle who goes down and places uh, her young on her, on her back and carries them out to safety in the midst of turmoil. This is what God's image is, an image of an eagle who's rescuing and saving his people and, he says, this is why I humbled Egypt. This is, this is what I desired. I wanted to rescue and save you. And, I, and not just to save you, to save you. To give you a new start and say, you're welcome. Now get along your way. I saved you. Notice how he says it there. I saved you for myself. I brought you to myself. I wanted to be in relationship with you. My saving love is not one of those things I just hand out and then, you know, sort of uh, sort of pat you on the back and send you on your way. It's, it actually is my way of eternally locking in a relationship with you. That's, that's what I did. That was my desire in all this. And I want you to remember before we ever start talking about this law, I want you to remember my past faithfulness. Now, I, I want you to see what it is that the Lord is doing here and the kindness of the Lord. That he doesn't just come to the people of Israel and quake and tremble a mountain and wrap it in smoke and with lightning from the beginning. He first communicates to them the depth of his love. He wants them to be wooed by his love so that they can receive rightly the massive and earth-shaking display of his holiness that's going to come a little later. He wants to woo them, woo them by his past faithfulness so that they can begin to ask the question of their own hearts, a question that the Lord is going to ask to you today. In light of the love that God has poured out on my behalf, how should I respond? What would be the appropriate response? I asked myself that question yesterday in writing this message and I immediately a story the Lord brought to mind, the story of a dear friend, Larry Goff, who was the Baptist Student Union Director at Jones County Junior College in Ellisville, Mississippi, a place that you've all visited many times, I'm sure, and know like the back of your hand. Larry is very important to me. He was a spiritual mentor to me during those very early 18, 19-year-old days. Gave me my first opportunities to teach the Bible. He was the very first person who looked me in the eye and said, young man, you're called to ministry. And I said, no way, Jose. And a few years later, I found out he was right. He was a man who told the story regularly of, as a Vietnam veteran, being shot down in his fighter plane and landing in a water, in the water, subconscious, hardly able to to see light from day, not completely out of it, but certainly not able to to swim, and then to have a Vietnamese soldier come and to rescue him. To, to come by in a, in a boat and to rescue him and bring him to shore. <laughs> and he, would, he said, that man, I was barely able to even look at him in the eye, but I gave him everything that I had on me as a way of saying thanks to him. And Larry would so regularly tell us that story and say, oh, how much more the Lord has done for you. He said, if I had had anything in life, I would have given it to that man for saving my life. You see, that's this moment in the story. God is saying to you, look at what I have done for you. How then should we respond? What would we hold back from a God who has loved us like this? You see, this is the structure of Exodus 19. It's the structure of the nature of the giving of the law. And that's why in the very next section in verse 5 there, he gives us, what it is he really wants from us. He says, here's what I want. It's a simple and yet for you difficult task. I want you to obey my voice and keep my covenant. I want you to obey my voice and keep my covenant. I want you to listen to my commands. You're about to hear a number of them. And I want them to be for you water and bread. It's you and meat. And drink. I want them to be for you the way in which you enjoy the richness of the benefits that I have secured for you in the unconditional salvation that I have made available to you. I want you to walk in the way of my law and love my law, listen to my voice and keep my covenant. Not because that's the way that you get saved, but because that's the way you enjoy and grow into the salvation that I have given you. That's the sweetness of what he's saying here. I want you to obey my voice. And I want you to keep my covenant. I wonder if you ever think of the law as the way of enjoying your salvation. Do you ever think of it in that language? Do you ever think of it as the outgrowth or the benefit of the grace which the Lord has given to you? Have you ever thought of it in that way? We don't think of it that way, do we, very often. I would like you to ponder that. How would your weekly rhythm, of temptations, your weekly challenges in areas of obedience in your life change if you understand that God's commands were His pathways for enjoying His love and grace for you in the Gospel. Well that is this glorious picture that's given here, this past faithfulness that leads to this present call that then gives display to a future promise. Do you see? He says, if you actually obey my voice and keep my covenant, here's what's going to happen. You will be my treasured possession. Now, we know that here, this text, which we don't have time this morning to go into, is actually displaying for us a kind of enthronement of Yahweh as king over the nation of Israel. It's really the the structure of Exodus 19, and we'll probably pull in some of those themes in the weeks to come. But thinking of it in that way, in verse 5, he already says to the people of Israel, doesn't he, the earth is all mine. Now, it's all his. The earth, everything is is his. He's referring to a kind of absolute monarchy here, right? This week, we've been thinking a lot about royalty, haven't we, and the loss of Queen Elizabeth. Elizabeth. We've been watching, haven't we, her faithful Christian testimony. What a beautiful thing that has been to watch. We've been thinking about royalty, but we're as, we're Americans, we, we're suspicious of kings, right? By nature, it comes with the territory. But I, I actually want to just want to encourage you for a minute. You're under a king today. His name is Jesus. He's on the throne of heaven. The future of your Geopolitical existence spiritually will always be monarchy. There'll be no checks and balances. There'll be no division of powers. There'll be no need for it. In this very reality, God here is in a sense drawing us into the beauty of an absolute monarchy that is led by a perfect monarch. All on earth is his. But he says, I want you to know, like a king, I have... In all of my domain, some special treasure that I keep for myself that I take great delight and joy in. That's you, Israel. You're my personal treasure. And you're my personal treasure that I long to give and see unfold a unique calling. I want you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation among all the nations. Isn't that an amazing statement that he makes here? A kingdom of priests. Now, when you think about a kingdom of priests, I mean, this sort of mix of rule and spiritual realities here, right? We think of a king and priestly functions as different, but they actually come together in the Scriptures so often. And here's one of the first examples of that in the text. He says, among the rule that I give, I want you to be priests. Well, this is the foundation for a doctrine that Martin Luther would crystallize much later in the 16th century, known as the priesthood of all believers. That every single individual among God's people would have access to him, would have access to him. They would be his priests. They don't need a, a, a go between. Now, what we see in this text is right now they need a go between, don't they? <laughs> his name is Moses. But there's a day where we wouldn't need a human go-between because we have one mediator between God and man. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need me, I hate to burst your bubble on this, you don't need me to pray for you in a special way for you to have access to God. Now, some of you need some convincing on that because you think something special happens if the minister or someone else prays. I can assure you, I don't have a corner on the grace market. I don't have some secret stash of mojos some back here spiritually speaking that I can somehow get a word in. That This image of the priesthood of all believers, this kingdom of priests, of people who rule in the world with full access to the Lord is what it is that God longs for his people to be. A nation set apart so that the world would look at them and it would be as if they were They were midwifing to the rest of the world knowledge of the glory of God's grace and covenant love. You know, that's what the church is supposed to be. It's a a kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms. It's a people who are called the ecclesia, the called out ones, the set apart ones. For the purpose, not because they are special, because they somehow got their act together and the rest of the world doesn't. We learn in the book of Deuteronomy that Israel didn't have anything special either. He tells them point blank. I didn't choose you because you were awesome. I chose you because I chose you. Because I love you. I chose you because I love you. You know, it's actually a sign. If the Lord chose you, it's it's probably... Because you you just needed him so desperately, and he loved you so deeply, and out of his kindness, he wanted to make much of his strength through a ragtag group of people like us. And he says, "I want you to be those kind of people, so that the rest of the world actually comes to know me through you—a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." Now, Moses, I want you to go down, and I want you to tell the people of Israel all these things. Now, I just want to ask you: Is your heart warmed by that from the Lord? It's so minious. What peace and comfort it gives to me to know of his past faithfulness. But also, do you feel a steeliness in your spine when he calls you as those who are to be kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a treasured possession unto him? Don't you want to go out and respond in love and faithfulness to his call? There should be something of that going on in your soul right now. Well, you see it in the text with the people of Israel. It's great. Look at verse 8. He goes down and all the people as he spoke these things to them answered and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Now you may read that and think to yourself, Oh foolish people, you are so naive. You're not going to do any of this stuff. You're going to fail at this time and time again. I want not want you to go there quite yet. That's an appropriate response, but that's not exactly the moment of this text. The moment of this text is the moment what I hope is in some ways happening actually right now in this room. And that is that the Spirit of the Lord is beginning a work in you and in me to such a degree that the instinct and the reflex of our heart when the Lord calls is to say, I will do all that He commands of me. Now you and I both know you're going to need to remember that commitment on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday this week and how far you fell short. And you're going to need to run back to Christ for that. And I pray that when you do, the next response of your heart is, I will do anything that he asked me to do. Don't neglect the moments where the Spirit of the Lord is bringing resolve into your heart to obey the things of which he has commanded. Don't play that down. Give thanks for that. Give thanks for that. If you immediately go to, well, I'll never be able to do it. You know what you'll probably never see? Growth. You're probably knocking yourself out at the knees. You know what you actually need? Some of that spiritual resolve probably mixed in with some fleshly ambition. But that's okay because on Wednesday you're going to be humbled. And you're going to see God's amazing love again. And by His grace, He'll give you even greater resolve. And that over the course of 10 or 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you know what you actually see? You see growth. And we're going to see that in some sense through the people of Israel here. But yes, there is a naivety here. They're not going to do everything that the Lord has spoken. And the Lord actually knows that. And so he says, okay, you want to do everything I've spoken? All right, Moses, come on back up here. Come on on back up here. And here's what's remarkable about this text. It says, the Lord draws close to his people. His people are to draw close to him. And then God says, don't get too close. That's what this text says. Don't get too close. That's what the the next ascent into Mount Sinai actually communicates to God's people. You see, he then tells Moses, as Moses goes up to report, hey, the people of God are on the same page. They're going to do everything that you've called them to do. And he says, all right, well, go tell the people this. Go tell the people that I'm going to come down on Mount Sinai in three days and you're going to see the worst thunderstorm you have ever seen in your entire life. And the ground around you is going to shake. And I'm going to respond with thunder. with That's going to be my words to them. And they're going to be freaked out. Like the God that they just said, man, he's amazing. We're going to follow him. They're going to now be like, Moses, why don't you go talk to him? We'll just hang out over here. You know, it's one of the most beautiful things, I believe, about going to the Appalachian Mountains is, is getting up you know, early in the morning and seeing them you know, hovered around with clouds. There's something mysterious about that, isn't it? There's a very interesting book that was written a few years ago called The Solace of Fierce Landscapes. And in that book, a professor from St. Louis University actually comments on Mount Sinai. He says, The image of this cloud-covered mountain half-hidden from view reminds us that what is not seen is often more compelling to the imagination than what is seen, alluring us both in its mystery and its inaccessibility, as God both reveals himself and hides himself at the same time. It speaks of two things at once, God's fierce and demanding presence and the fact of His incomprehensible greatness. I want you just to imagine for a second being an Israelite during the second and third ascent of Moses to this mountain. Imagine yourself watching Moses from a safe distance and seeing him disappear into the thunderstorm. Just imagine yourself, right? This is not the day to climb the mountain, right? The weather report is bad. This is the day that God calls Moses up the mountain. Surely, part of them are looking back to see if he survives. And as he enters into the cloud and he is completely removed from sight, you know the imagination begins to run wild. And something of the fearful and awe-inspiringness of this moment would have had to have settled over the congregation of the people of Israel like a holy hush it's there where the Lord wants the people of Israel he says to see him and to actually he says I want them to overhear us talking that's what he says. now we're told in verse 21 of the text that actually the overhearing of them talking was that God communicated to them to Moses in thunder He responded to him in thunder. So imagine, as they were listening to the thunder, that's that's God's voice. He's talking to Moses. He wants them to be awestruck by his glory. He wants them to know that he reveals himself in word. He wants the people to be aware of this, but he wants them to see Moses go up into the mountain so that they know. He actually says, verse 9, that the people will know that I am speaking to you, and they will believe you forever. (laughs) Notice God's purpose in this. His purpose is not merely to put on a firework show. His purpose is that when that same Moses who went and disappeared into the cloud comes down out of that cloud to say a word from the Lord, the people will go, tell us, we believe you. (laughs) Like we've been watching this thing happen and we're like, oh my goodness, Moses is up there. And now he's come with probably something of a glowing face. And as he comes to speak to the people God's very words, they'll want to believe you forever. Do you see what God is doing here for Moses as mediator? He's building his respect and credentialing him in the eyes of the people. So that they'll listen to him. Now, you may be asking yourself, why do they need to listen to him? Well, here's the reality. If they don't listen to him, someone's probably going to die. Probably lots of people. That sounds really melodramatic, but in that second ascent, doesn't it, to Mount Sinai, what's the word? I want you to go down and consecrate the people. Probably sacrifice on their behalf. I want you to tell them to wash all of their garments. I want you to put up a barricade with that yellow caution tape. I want you to put that all around Mount Sinai. And anyone who even touches the mountain is to be killed. They need to believe you on this. That when you speak, I speak. I want them to believe you forever. Now, now what what a perplexing passage this is. We said that the ascent number one is God drawing close to us. Remember my past faithfulness, my present call. You're my treasured possession. And we drawing close to him. And now he's saying, don't get too close in ascent two and three. Because I am a holy God. You know, I couldn't couldn't read this passage this week without being reminded of Annie Dillard's great work teaching a stone to talk, very famous section in her wonderful reflection, where she, in a very real sense, poking fun at us in the best possible way. Especially, don't live with a sense of the holiness of God. I wonder if that was on your mind and heart this morning when you came here, that you're going to meet with a God who quakes on a mountain with lightnings and thunders, and of whom, if you even get close to the thing he's on, you die. Was that who you expected to meet? Annie Dillard wonders so. On the whole, she says, I do not find that Christians outside of the catacombs are sufficiently sensible to the conditions of things. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we are invoking? Or, as I suspect, does anyone really believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill off a Sunday morning. It is madness to me that ladies wear straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should be passing out life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God might awake and take offense. Or the waking God might draw us out to where we will never return. Dillard is concerned, isn't she, rightfully, about the fact that reverence and awe is very often missing. Missing from our worship, missing from our lives. And the reason I would suggest to you that reverence and awe is missing is because holiness is missing in our understanding of who God is. As Dillard alludes to, I suspect no one believes it. That the pattern here, though, of ascending and descending upon the mountain is actually a dance between the holiness of God and the unholiness of the people down in the camp. That's the whole point of this. That's the dance of what's taking place here. This whole up and down, uh, back and forth is about the fact that God is holy and we are not. And we can't get too close. That's actually, if we can be honest, that's why he's trying to prepare the people. He's saying, listen... Go consecrate them. Have sacrifices. Get them to clean their clothes. You remember he even says, don't get close to a woman. Now, I hope you weren't offended by that. There's nothing, nothing about you ladies in here. It's meant negatively by that comment. It literally means to husbands, to men, don't get preoccupied with the woman. Now is not the time for that. You need to have your eyes glued on the mountain. You need to pay attention to the holiness of God. Now is the time to have your attention arrested and awakened to a holy fear. And and what's remarkable about that is that when it is, as what I hope is in some ways happening in our own hearts and lives this morning, do you know what begins to happen when we actually see the holiness of God? We start to live circumspectly, we start to pay attention to what we click on on the internet we start to wonder whether we should have that next drink or that next piece of food or how we talk to our spouse. Like we actually start thinking of how we live and the light of the fact that the same God who came down on Mount Sinai is coming back in a great white throne judgment. He makes it very clear to us, doesn't he, in the scriptures that the sobriety of that should not be lost on the hearts of God's people and we must not be cavalier about it. And the reality is that the people of God took it seriously. And you know what happened? Well, he called Moses back up a third time. And you know what he said? Go go back down again. Can you go back down again and just tell them the same thing? Remind them again. And, And you actually see... You actually see Moses a little frustrated here. Look look at verse 23. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us, saying set limits around the mountains and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down. (laughs) Okay, Okay, all right, all right. They already know what it is that you've told them. He's like, they need to hear it again. It could be that God saw in his wisdom the uh, That What happened? You know, after 24 hours of a quaking mountain, you start to go, well, that's just kind of the way it is now. Not really taking it seriously anymore. You want to come down, make sure that they're taking it seriously. Now, this reality is, is we're bumping up against in this text a dilemma that runs the whole of the Scripture, you understand. A dilemma that I stated at the very beginning of our service this morning, and that is how does a holy God draw close to an unholy people? And how can an unholy people draw close to a holy God? And the remarkable thing is that the story of the Bible answers this question in the most mesmerizingly horrific and beautiful way. The answer to this dilemma in a very interesting way is that God must get far closer to us And God himself must experience, in the person of Jesus Christ, the forsakenness of the distance that we should experience. That's what must actually happen. Now what do I mean by that? Well, we know that in Christ Jesus, God became man. Fully man, in every sense man, without in any way losing his divinity. He being a perfect representative of God to us and we to God. And in that person of Christ, yet without sin, He climbs the mountain. Yes, that mountain. You know it by the name Calvary. He climbs that mountain and He takes upon himself the full charge of your sin and my sin. The the thing that keeps God up on the mountain and the people in the camp and someone going between in order to communicate with the two parties. that, That God sends himself in the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, as he climbs the mountain, is becoming for us a greater Moses, isn't he? One who is going to intercede for his people perfectly in a way that Moses never could. We know that Moses is a sinner. We're going to see later in the story of the book of Exodus the fact he doesn't even get into the promised land because of his sin. We need someone like the Lord Jesus Christ who's going to come and climb a mountain with the charge of our sin upon him, perfectly representing God to us and perfectly representing us to God. And that this Lord Jesus would receive the wrath and the judgment of the Lord. He would touch as it were the mountain and all that the mountain stood for. And he would come under the sword of the wrath and the judgment of God, his holiness and his justice. And that then we would see on the third day, isn't it interesting, on the third day, we would see his vindication. We would see him rise. We would see him ascend, right? Out of, out of the recesses of the darkness into the brightness of the day to where he would ascend. Where is he today? He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And do you know what he's doing there? He's doing what Moses is doing. He's interceding on you for you on behalf of his people. That he has climbed, as it were, Mount Zion. Uh, right? You know, that's... That's the last mountain, the final ascent for for you and for me is to climb Mount Zion. And here's what's remarkable is that you could never climb it. The people of God were never going to get enough Clorox bleach to get those clothes white enough. They were never going to have enough sacrifices. We see that in the Old Testament. Their barriers were never going to be far enough to get them away from the holiness of God. They needed someone. Someone who would climb, as it were, Mount Sinai. And it would be called Mount Zion. And today would be one in whom we are described in the, by the writer of Hebrews as people who have come to Mount Zion. That's who you are people who've been welcomed into the city of the heavenly Jerusalem, where, according to the writer of Hebrews, innumerable angels in festal gathering are gathered here, assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven to God, the judge of all the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and the Jesus who is, the writer of Hebrews says, a new mediator of a better covenant, who has sprinkled us with blood that speaks even better than the blood of Abel. Do you see, this is an absolute contrast, isn't it? Did you hear that? Uh, it's an absolute contrast. It was the, the Mount Sinai was dark and stormy. What, what is Mount Zion? It's bright and it's full of light. Mount Sinai was a place you couldn't approach. He says, you're welcomed to Mount Zion. The judge of all the nations is ready to pour out his wrath in Mount Sinai, but now the judge of all the nations is in the midst of the righteous made perfect. And what we see is a festal gathering, he says, with angels around, a celebration that the fullness of the gospel is true. Listen, friends, today is a day to remember and to believe in the holiness of God and to respond with reverence and all. And today is the day to run toward the holiness of God. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and know that you are received, loved, accepted, and welcomed onto the mountain. And it is here where forever He will meet with you. If you're in the Lord Jesus Christ today, I pray that that not only provokes you in growth, but it grows you in joy and in comfort. That the Holy God of Israel is the Savior of the Gentiles, of anyone even this day who would call upon the name of the Lord. Father in heaven, I pray that you would know the hearts in this room. You would know those who don't know you. And today, by your grace, would be a day of salvation. That you would know the ones whose heart has drifted from you and who have been cavalier and laissez-faire about their relationship with you today, Lord. Would you glue their attention to your holiness? And would you cause their hearts to be melted by the mesmerizing beauty of the perfect mediator on their behalf, the Lord Jesus Christ? And, oh, Christ, would you pour out your Spirit now to speak to our hearts with hope and with confidence that we might walk in the newness of life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, This we pray in your holy name. Amen.